Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is John Criscow. I am the author of eight nonfiction books including the novel Spoon and a collection of poetry. Kokomo Joe is the story of the first Japanese-American jockey in the U.S. He was born in the White River Valley east of Seattle. Just weeks after his birth, his mother died in the influenza epidemic of 1918, and his father sent him back to Japan as a baby to be raised and educated there. But at only 16 years old... He returned to the U.S. Not five feet tall and weighing less than a hundred pounds, he soon found work as an apprentice jockey. As war loomed with Japan during the summer of 1941, Kokomo Joe's arrival in the world of horse racing was electrifying, especially on the West Coast, where he began riding the fair circuit with high hopes of making it big at Santa Anita or Hollywood Park. His is the story of the American dream catapulting headlong into the nightmare of a nation gripped by wartime hysteria. Kokomo Joe was the leading rider that summer of 1941 in county fairs at Pleasanton, Santa Rosa, Arcata Eureka, Stockton, and Sacramento. At the Humboldt County Fair, he set a racing record by winning seven straight races and sweeping the card. Turf writers predicted stardom, and they referred to him as a Nipponese package of dynamite. But on Sunday, December 7, 1941, Kokomo Joe was riding at the Caliente racetrack in Tijuana, Mexico. What happened to him that day is dramatized in Chapter 12 of Kokomo Joe, the story of the first Japanese-American jockey in the U.S., Mexican taxis carried tourists along dusty back roads and shortcuts into Tijuana to buy trinkets or to have their pictures taken beside the painted zebra on the avenida. Music from jukeboxes and mariachi bands floated out of avenida bars, serving a fiery tequila that some said went down your throat like a torchlight parade. It was noon on Sunday, December 7, 1941, and Kokomo Joe had been up since dawn, galloping horses and then lying alone, in the room he kept in the dark dormitory for jockeys and grooms, who did not want the trouble of weekly border crossings at San Isidro. The room was small, but it was big enough for everything that Kokomo Joe needed in his nomadic life, a bed, a dresser, an armoire in which to hang a few shirts and pants, and a small bedside table for magazines. The December issue of Life magazine lay in the table. It wasn't just the prospect of interesting pictures that had prompted him to buy the magazine for a dime at a newsstand on the Avenida. It was the fascinating cover picture with a belly view of a menacing B-17 Flying Fortress bomber in flight, its nose turret machine guns poking forward 
like the fangs of a venomous snake. Life's depiction of America's new military character was a far cry from those pictures Kokomo Joe had once admired of America's rich and smoky indolence. In the two months since he had arrived back at Caliente, that transition of America from a country of peaceful limousines to squadrons of flying fortresses prepared for war had accelerated. In November, in what was described as an effort to improve America's bargaining power with an increasingly aggressive Japan, President Roosevelt announced that he was prepared to pull U.S. Marines out of various locations in China. The overwhelming Japanese forces in China made the Marines little more than a suicide battalion anyway, so Roosevelt's move was less conciliatory than it appeared. But Tokyo's top diplomat, Saburo Kurosu, still headed for Washington, seeking a peaceful resolution to its quarrel with America. Failing that, Kurosu warned that Japan was ready to move forward by other means. Three days later, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox said that America could no longer ignore Japanese actions in the Far East. Knox added that the hour of decision was here for America, and he called for instant readiness for war. Then, as November came to a close, Secretary of State Cordell Hull said an ultimatum to the Japanese government. Among its provisions were demands that Japan withdraw from China and Indochina, or else. There was no immediate response from Tokyo to Hull's ultimatum, and on December 1st, the day that life pictured the flying fortress on its cover, the Japanese consulate in Washington began destroying its records. At noon that same day, President Roosevelt cut short his vacation at Warm Springs, Georgia, and returned to the White House. Meanwhile, despite the commitment of General Hideji Toko's cabinet to continuing negotiation with America, the official Japanese news agency reported that America was trying to turn the Pacific Ocean into her own pond and the Pacific Rim into her own garden. Japan's position seemed final. The United States must correct her attitude. On Saturday, December 6th, as Yoshio Kabuki galloped his mounts in preparation for Sunday's Caliente races, Roosevelt made one last move to go around the intransigent military government of Premier Tojo. The president sent an urgent personal message to Emperor Hirohito. It was, the newspaper reported, the last step America intended to take before it broke with Japan. War seemed imminent, but war seemed to be the last thing in the minds of the nearly 30 jockeys scheduled to ride mounts in the 12 race card at Caliente. They began gathering at mid-morning in the jockeys' room, and they chattered and shouted with anticipation for the day's races. No one in the crowded jockeys' room was more excited than Kokomo Joe Kobuki, with his arrival at Agua Caliente in October and riding only on Sundays, he had continued his winning ways. 
On Sunday, October 19th, he had had three winners. Then the following Sunday, he had had four winners. And upstage, the national riding champion, jockey Johnny Adams. Japanese pilot steals spotlight, the Los Angeles Times headline reported. It was, they said, the best riding effort of the fall. From Terminal Island to Tokyo, the Times said. The Japanese were celebrating Kobuki's victories with rice and tasty shrimp. Energized by his new successes, Kokomo Joe had even begun riding with some of the daredevil spirit that his agent Charlie Brown had first spotted in Phoenix. It was an important riding quality, but Brown had to remind Kobuki it needed to be measured and disciplined, or it was nothing but reckless abandon that would get him injured or worse, killed. Kabuki had tried to discipline himself, but back in November he had still been called into the steward's office at Caliente to explain his actions after he had shot from the starting gate in one of his races and then cut off the rest of the field. "'What in the world were you doing?' the stewards asked him. "'Mr. Charlie told me, cut him off,' he said, and flashed his broad smile. "'Mr. Charlie won a win.' he added, as if he didn't, as if he was just a smiling, obliging chauffeur, this time of horses, as if on that December 7th Sunday he wasn't as hell-bent and determined as all the other eager riders in the jockey's room. Shortly after noon that Sunday, across the border in San Diego, paper boys began rushing into the streets with an extra edition of the San Diego Union. The Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. Rumors of the attack began circulating among the track's 7,000 fans shortly after the first race. By the time Kokomo Joe walked to the paddock for his first mount in the third race, bettors and railbirds stood in small groups discussing what they had heard. Who attacked whom? Where? Oahu? Where the hell is that? The question for the moment was whether or not the border station at San Isidro would remain open. Should all Americans head back across the border? It was one thing to spend a sunny Sunday with Hollywood stars and American playboys in the Spanish baronial setting of the Caliente Turf Club. It was quite another to be stranded for days, maybe weeks, in dusty and bawdy Tijuana, where there was no weekday racing and only the pleasures of Ratgat Tequila. Kokomo Joe was dismounting after a disappointing finish in the middle of the pack in the third race when the announcer made it official. The Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. But he said there was little likelihood of the border closing. The spirit of friendship that existed between the United States and Mexico was too long-standing, he explained. There will never be a barrier between the two countries. But rumors and speculation continued to fly around the track, and a spirit of uneasiness prevailed throughout the afternoon. It wasn't until just before the tenth race that someone brought a radio into the jockey's room 
and the riders listened to urgent radio bulletins describing the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Charlie Brown had no horses in the 10th race, and Kokomo Joe had accepted a mount from a small barn called Georgia Stables. Kobuki was changing slowly into the stable's silks when several of the jockeys told him that he better leave the track. He wasn't sure if it was friendly advice or an angry order. "'How can I leave?' he asked. "'I have a mount in the 10th race.' "'Georgia Stables can get a substitute rider,' they told him. "'No, no. Failure to meet a riding obligation was the worst sin a jockey could commit. "'He'd be fined, suspended.' "'The other jockeys laughed. "'His loyalty to the kingpins and bosses of thoroughbred racing was misplaced. "'To owners and trainers, most jockeys were no more than tiny gladiators and just as expendable.' He should leave the track immediately, they repeated. Then jockey Junior Nicholson delivered a warning. The Mexican police are unpredictable, he said. There is no telling what they might try to do in the crisis, or actually do. Other jockeys agreed. There was still talk around the track of a black stable hand who had refused to cooperate with Tijuana police in an investigation of track corruption. The stable hand hadn't agreed to talk until police led him to a bullet-riddled stone wall in front of a firing squad and then offered him a last cigarette and a blindfold. If Kokomo Joe didn't want to be put against a stone wall and shot himself, he should get back across the border to the safety of America. Now. No, no, he answered. What did they know about being Nipponese dynamite at an American racetrack alongside patriotic jockeys named Johnny and George? Kabuki insisted he was safe in Mexico, and he continued changing into his silks for the tenth race. His mount was Precious Moon, a four-year-old gelding who went off as the third favorite in a large field of eleven horses going a mile and a sixteenth. Kobuki went straight to the front, and down the backstretch he opened up a three-length lead. Three different horses moved up to challenge him during the race, but each time they did, he stroked Precious Moon with his whip and kept the three-length lead. But at the sixteenth pole, a fourth horse, a twenty-to-one long shot named Wiley Barr, came from the middle of the field in a rush and slid easily past Precious Moon, despite Kobuki's furious whipping. After the race, Kokomo Joe sat in the corner of the jockey's room, still in his silks, nursing the disappointment of his loss. Two track stewards appeared suddenly in the room. Because of the news from Pearl Harbor, the last two races of the day had been canceled, they explained. Then they headed for the corner where Kabuki sat. For a moment, he wondered if they had come to chastise him about his aggressive ride on Precious Moon through the stretch. But the stewards had a different message. Mexican officials were rounding up the entire Japanese population of Tijuana. They would be sent to a camp in Sonora, or worse, a hellhole prison in Panama City, Panama. Kokomo Joe needed to leave the track immediately, they warned. 
Kobuki stood up and began slowly unbuttoning his silks. They stopped him. You don't have time to change, they said. You need to drive back across the border for your safety. I have to talk to Mr. Charlie first, he insisted. No, there isn't time, they said. Get going now. They began pushing him toward the door of the jockey's room as he tried to explain that he didn't have a car. By then a small crowd of jockeys stood around Kobuki. Whatever dog-eat-dog competitiveness he had experienced at every track that summer, some of it clearly driven by bigotry, was momentarily forgotten. This was one of their own, a tiny fellow gladiator trapped in an unpredictable country by the sudden emergencies of a global war. But no one seemed to know what to do. The answer came from a 21-year-old freelance writer from Austin, Texas, named Roy Tex McCorder. He was a racetrack jack-of-all-trades, from stable hand to valet to exercise boy for Charles Howard's horses. He even rode an occasional race himself, but he had no mounts that day, and now he offered to drive Kabuki quickly back to the San Isidro border station. His car, he said, was parked outside the track. The two men trotted out of the jockey's room to Kabuki's room, in the dormitory where he grabbed what few belongings he had and threw them in the cardboard suitcase. With Kabuki sitting inconspicuously in the back seat, McCorder raced to the border along the back roads, passing even the Mexican taxis raising dust clouds. At the border, Kokomo Joe jumped out of the car, thanked McCorder for his help, then trotted toward the gateways marking the border. Mexican police, with pistols and badges as big as breastplates, stopped him on their side immediately. In broken English, they demanded to know where he was going. Back to San Diego, he answered. From where? He pinched his silks. I am a jockey. I've been riding at Caliente. So why are you going back to San Diego? I'm an American, he answered, raising his voice. Not Japanese? No, no, not Japanese. I am American, he repeated. The police explained that they had orders to stop any Japanese nationals trying to leave Mexico. I'm an American, he repeated for a third time, pleading now. So, what is your name? The police scowled as they waited for him to answer. Meanwhile, car horns blared from long lines of impatient drivers who were trying to cross back into the safety of California. The sun had set but turned the distant red sky as if it might have been Pearl Harbor burning beyond the horizon. Against the noise and rancor, Kabuki had only his trademark toothy smile and he flashed it now. My name is Yoshio Kobuki, he said. Everyone calls me Kokomo Joe, he added. The police seemed puzzled. Kokomo Joe? Yes, Kokomo Joe, born in America. They smiled back now. Well, all right, he could go, but he better stay out of Mexico the border was closed to all Japanese nationals coming or going. 
he fairly skipped around the Mexican police and might have celebrated the fact that his engaging smile had worked again and his troubles were over. But he had no sooner reached the American side of the border, manned by border patrol inspectors in garrison hats and Sam Brown belts, when he was stopped again. World War had finally come. The threat of invasion seemed real, and nobody, especially a Japanese peanut flashing a cartoon smile and dressed in jockey's silks, was going to come waltzing into America when Pearl Harbor was ablaze just beyond the horizon. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. <laughs>